In some ways, the entire global economy and capitalism itself is a mega Ponzi scheme. The rising tide doesn't really lift all boats, it really only lifts yachts. That's economist and former advertising executive Jerry Mander, founder of the International Forum on Globalization. This is Conversation Earth, exploring our place on the planet. I'm Dave Gardner, and in this episode, we'll hear his thoughts about capitalism, globalization, advertising, and consumerism. Jerry Mander is in a unique position to understand the power of advertising to move us to act against our best interests. After earning bachelor's and master's degrees in economics, he ended up in the advertising business, eventually as a partner at a San Francisco ad agency. He grew to realize the power of advertising was being harnessed to preserve an unsustainable system, a system that requires ever-increasing amounts of consumption. Mander authored Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television and co-wrote The Case Against the Global Economy and For a Turn Toward the Local. In 1971, Mander founded the first nonprofit advertising agency in the United States, Public Interest Communications. He founded the International Forum on Globalization in 1994 and continues to serve as a distinguished fellow there. I sat down with Jerry Mander in his office in 2010 for this conversation. Jerry, how did consumption ascend to the throne we have it on in our culture? The culture essentially transitioned over to being about consumption in the 1950s and 60s. That was when the need was to show accelerated growth coming out of the period of war and out of the period of depression in order to use up the industrial capacity that the war machine produced. Globalization was a conscious effort to help that kind of expansion take place. The growth of advertising helped make, make it very much possible for that to take place at a faster level than before. The creation of the consumer society was part of that pattern. To what extent it was a group, a small group of individuals getting together in a room and figuring out what direction it would go in is, um, I mean, it probably wasn't a very small group, but there were, but there were small groups such as in Bretton Woods that did get together to try to recreate an economy that would be based on growth, global growth, led by global corporations. And they succeeded in doing that for a while, for 50 years. That's collapsing now. That's beginning to collapse. I, I really don't think any of these people thought about the limits of nature. I don't think any of these people felt that there was any barrier to, to constantly expanding ec- economic growth and to getting all countries of the world lined up for that. And uh, I believe they thought it would benefit everybody. So I can believe the best about them in terms of their intentions and still think they were amazingly stupid for thinking that you could do that on a, on a plan, planet of limited capacity. Of course, in those days, we weren't talking about that. It wasn't until, you know, the key figures in the 1950s and 60s and 70s who started us talking about that were people like David Brower of the Sierra Club, who was the first that I know of who was really vigorously talking about the insanity of a society based upon never-ending economic growth. And then you had um, Rachel Carson, writing her great book uh, about the agricultural systems based upon these hyped-up pesticides and what that was causing and that that couldn't continue. 
And then you had the reports by the Club of Rome um, on the end of growth and the necessity for the end of growth. So there was some discussion of that, but that was all being done in the context of this hyperactivated go, 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 grow, grow, grow kind of wealth is what it's all about and, um, and that could go on forever. Other than those people and a few parts of the emerging environmental movement in those days, there was very little willingness to discuss the fact that this was a temporary thing. So people just went for it. And of course, the, with ever-expanding advertising and just an enormous amount of cheap fuel available from oil, um, we had a period where we could get away with all that. And um, it was the great heyday for capitalism and for corporate domination, and people thought it would um, go on forever, but um, the party's over. Now it's not going to continue anymore. Did advertising play a big role in this? Advertising was the instrument that made that possible. Advertising was accelerated enormously during those years, and uh, visions of what life would be like were contained mainly in advertising images, um, life being about consuming more and more and, and commodity consumption and the happy family with their car and their private house. And all of that was in all the advertising images of the period. And so they all conspired together, really, to create a kind of cultural understanding of how life was supposed to be led. And so uh, an advertisement for a car was supportive of an advertisement for a drug and was supported by an advertisement for a house. And combined, they created an entire vision of consumer culture, which, which in the 1960s really reached, reached its uh, apex with the, with the highest rate of growth that we had uh, ever experienced up to that point. And television, of course, which had been around since the 1930s, was, had been lying dormant, uh, barely being used. But suddenly there was an instrument by which you could speak images directly into people's heads and get them to see a world that they had not thought of on their own and get them to identify with that set of images and um, to turn into it. See, the power, of, the power of these images is just enormous and people adopted these images of, as, as, as to how they would want to be in the world. So the 60s is when all that came together. Well, fast forward to today. Is television still doing its thing? I do think it's still doing its thing. It's um, uh, right now, 90, I think it's 95% of the country has television and um, 99% of the people who have television watch an enormous amount of that time. The average viewer is watching almost five hours of television every day. And um, during that entire five hours, they're sitting there receiving images into their brains, which are showing them about what life is like, and those images are permanent. They don't go away. And so you could say that television is the main experience of everyday life for most Americans. And I don't think it's any less the case today just because we also have computers. I think the immersion into uh, Internet culture and to the images that are coming from computers is just as powerful. And, and in its own way, even though we have a little bit more control of the back and forth of that process. It's still moving us into a world of concentrated, technological, consumption-oriented imagery, which is sort of encasing the whole culture in a monolithic framework of how to be in the world. 
By living in that universe of technology and media, people have, you might say, moved inside of an of a, of a artificial framework of consciousness. And the natural world and the values of the natural world that are outside that are lost to most people's experience. So it's a... Uh, we're increasingly alienated from the sources of our life and experience and economy and everything about it. So when concerns come up for the oceans or animals or forests or um, the natural, the circumstance of the natural world, or we speak about things like limits of nature or the limits to growth, it's hard for people to get that idea. It's, it's sort of like they don't live in that world. They don't live in a world which, where all of that is apparent. So they're kind of walking around with it, living in a kind of uh, enclosed universe, you might say. Does globalization also play a role in our inability to connect with the sources of our sustenance? A lot of people think of globalization as somehow kind of a, um, some kind of organic outgrowth of natural evolution of human beings, that things get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they become globalized. But Globalization is really a thought-up system. It's a system that was created at a meeting in 1945. I mean, there's globalization of prior, prior times, like Columbus and the East India Company traveling across the ocean and starting to move products back and forth across oceans. But the modern era of globalization began after the Second World War, and it was created in the same way as our consumer society was Domestically, the largest corporations in the world and the largest banks in the world and the largest group of academics who believed in economic expansion got together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and they decided they tried to discuss how are we going to get out of the mess that World War II created? How are we going to um, develop the four people in the world? How are we going to help those economies uh, recover that were uh, done in by the war? And all they wanted to do was provide a new kind of economic development for people. And they thought their operating phrase was a rising tide would lift all boats and that the idea was to create an enormous amount of growth which would spread over the world and help everybody have more stuff and have a better life. And so they designed a model which would achieve that. And basically... Uh, that model was what we now call economic globalization. And uh, I was at Columbia University Graduate Business School in those days studying this. And every day you would hear about how corp global corporations were going to be the way to save the world because global corporations don't want war. They want an entry to all these countries in the world and gaining access to all their resources and gaining access to their markets. And those countries would gain access to other markets and we'd have a free-flowing system and all of that would just accelerate enormously the, the amount of productive, productive capacity and consumption that, um, that would uh, lift, lift all boats. The Bretton Woods meeting was in 1945, and out of that came the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, and later on the World Trade Organization and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And all of that was to eliminate barriers to corporate entry, corporate growth, and the expansion of, of material production and the expansion of consumption. And um, it worked to the degree that you were able to expand all, all of these things, and we did expand, but it didn't work from the point of view of whether it was gonna benefit people in general, because 
After 50 years of that, there's a greater separation between the rich and the poor within countries and among countries now than there has ever before been, and more than there was then. And it's because the rising tide doesn't really lift all boats. It really only lifts yachts for the most part. And it has much more benefit for the industrialized countries who have greater access to the poor countries because they're able to get all the resources and bring them back and develop them into their products for commodity purchase than does the poor countries who are only operating out of a uh, resource colony mode. And that's really how it all worked out. But the big problem with globalization was really that um, it depended upon three things. Growth was the object. In order to have the growth, you had to have never-ending supply of resources, never-ending supply of, of new markets, and never-ending supply of cheap labor. We ignored one important factor, which is that the Earth is a finite system. You can't keep digging it out and taking all its resources forever, and that um, you can't keep expanding markets forever, and that you can't keep growing forever. You, you, you can't even keep cheap labor forever, because in the era of media, of mass media, labor doesn't really want to be cheap anymore. They see everybody else with these fake images of prosperity all over the place. They want that too. They don't want to be cheap. So the, the whole, all the basis of the whole system is breaking down. Most, most importantly, the immense course of operating with diminishing resources and much more expensive fuel costs. And so globalization is one of those um, economic assumptions that's going to be, um, it's not going to continue. It's globalization's nearing, nearing the end of its ability. And of course, that whole way of commodifying and experiencing the, of, of gaining profits through that activity is beginning to run out. That's one of the causes of the current financial breakdown is the failure of the ability to keep operating in that same way. Poor countries don't longer want us to come in and get their last resources, and there aren't that many resources to begin with. Resources are harder to find, much more expensive to get, especially fossil fuel resources. Alternative energy systems are not going to be able to pick up the slack from the loss of fossil fuels. And so that entire model of production is going to uh, continue to fail. And so what do finance people do? Then they go into things that have nothing to do with the environment at all. They go into fictional economic activities, such as derivatives, and which are all a kind of Ponzi scheme, and they have to keep growing and expanding or the whole thing collapses. And so what we have basically is the switch to a virtual economic system, while the entire system can't keep its performance going anymore. Globalization has, I believe, run its course, just as uh, continued economic expansion has run its course. So it's really not our decision to make whether to continue pursuing globalization. You know, if we do nothing at all, it's going to collapse. It's collapsing whether we are get all active and motivated or we don't because it's based upon the idea of what is essentially a, a fundamentally flawed concept that continuous economic growth on a finite planet is possible. That's the kind of insanity to believe that. In some ways, the entire global economy and capitalism itself is based upon a kind of Ponzi scheme, a mega Ponzi scheme, because it only continues to work as long as you can keep expanding forever. 
You run out of commodities, you run out of resources, you run out of markets, you run out of uh, costs get too great. <clears throat> and uh, the planet begins to speak back in terms of climate chaos and so on. And, um, and the system collapses, it fails, it can't, keep, it can't sustain itself. So we're all living in a system that is doomed to fail. So I don't think we need to do much for the, in order to be in a position to make changes because I think the system is not going to be able to go on the way it is now. But I, we do have to think clearly about what kind of uh, alternative systems that we want to see develop in the future. You know, many think the Great Recession is just another cycle like we've seen before and we'll recover and go on about our business. <clears throat> I think we can have short-run recoveries from time to time, but... The fundamentals are in conflict. We're, we're running out of resources. We're running out of places to dump things. We're using too much stuff. There's, there's only so much space, and there's only so many resources, and there's only so much possibility for industrial development. And we're seeing the, the ecological reactions right now everywhere. And those things will prevent a permanent recovery, because a permanent recovery implies that an, an, an always expanding economic process and that you can't have that on a fi- in a finite system. So sooner or later, we have to design ways of being which are, uh, which are not based on growth and which are not based upon the need for corporate growth or constant profits or any of the things that are driving the system right now. More with Gerrymander in a moment. You're listening to Conversation Earth, exploring our place on the planet. The show is distributed free to radio stations around the world. It's made possible by support from listeners like you. Find out more at conversationearth.org. Now back to a conversation recorded in 2010 with Gerrymander. Jerry, we read that energy is a very big part of the equation telling us the era of growth is coming to an end. It's just one part but a big part. Yeah, we also hear that renewable energy can power the world. If you, if you took all of the alternative energy systems now being discussed and considered them in terms of, what, of their net energy gain, that is to say how much energy they are capable of producing versus how much energy goes into them, how much energy they cost in order to produce one amount of energy, None of them is capable of producing a, a level of energy on the scale that fossil fuels um, did that fed the giant explosive activity of the 1960s. And all of them together, all combined, would only account for a very small percentage of transformation. In other words, there's no way to sustain the industrial system at its present level with the demise of fossil fuels. And I think this is one of the grimmest facts that's not being very well uh, exposed at the moment. There is no way you can maintain the industrial system at its present level uh, for um, beyond another couple of decades. And so there's not going to be any way around that. So the, the question is going to be, what kind of economy will people live with and how, how can that be made equitable? And how do we sustain a system that has no growth, and still provides people a reasonable life. That's the problem today. What do you think, then, when we hear about green jobs? Well, there are jobs in some of these alternative systems that are 
that are worthy jobs. I mean, I, th I think we do want to see solar developed. We do want to see wind power developed. We do want to see greater care in uh, agriculture and in um, production of cottons and fabrics and so on. We, we, we want to see building construction done in a much more responsible way so that it's not uh, harmful and there are no fewer chemicals and fewer waste products from it. But to assume that you can convert into a system where, where all the jobs will be green or the system itself will be green and sustain it at its present level where you have a level of production and consumption that, and a level of industrial profit and growth that is like it is today is just a fantasy. So how do we deprogram ourselves? How do we get this obsession with more out of our culture? There's just tons of evidence that the promises of capitalism and the promises of individual wealth and the promises of a society based upon never-ending growth, never-ending accumulation of commodities, never-ending um, living a life of where you seek more stuff, that the promises are false promises because the more research that has been done on asking people at different levels of, of income and consumption, are they happy? The more we're finding out that um, it's a very interesting, these studies are very interesting because they sort of come out where people who are living at a level of um, what you can call sufficiency, that is to say, if you have enough food on your table, your kids are able to go to school, they have clothes, there's a certain amount of health care available, they feel safe to some degree, they have a place to live that's good, that's decent, they don't have any surplus. But if you have that level of sufficiency, uh, people generally call themselves ha happy. If you have like 10% above that, sufficiency plus 10, you might say, then those people are really happy. Those are the happiest people. Then as you go up from there to, to very wealthy and high consumptive levels of society, the percentage that reports happiness begins to decline. And at a certain level, it goes absolutely, it absolutely falls. So one wonders what the trade-off ingredient, what the ingredients of the trade-off are. And uh, it's probably time and family and wilderness and culture and the things that have been broken down from all that. The countries that, where generally speaking, there's greater happiness reported uh, are not who you would expect. The very wealthy countries, they tend to be the countries that are most culturally alive, where there's the greatest amount of nature available, where life is relatively easy because of weather and living conditions are not that difficult, like tropical countries. And where there's, there's a, 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 not very much wealth, but there's a level of sufficiency. And so countries like the Philippines and Costa Rica and uh, some Scandinavian countries are, are high, very high on the happiness level. But countries that are very, very wealthy are very, very mediocre on the happiness level, including the United States and even Canada. So I think that the, the promise of what, what the growth culture is supposed to deliver is a false promise and is increasingly noted as a false promise. 
So then the question is, well, what, what, what do we do now? Somewhere along the line, there's going to have to be a movement toward um, against the idea of consumption as being the most satisfying thing in life, and back to the idea of away from globalization and toward localization, back to the idea of sufficiency rather than accumulation, back to the idea of local production for local consumption and local control, local democracy, away from from abstract controlling systems like global corporations and global institutions and global economic domination. We don't hear this kind of thinking from politicians. Is it happening somewhere? Somehow this needs to bubble up into the public policy arena, doesn't it? We see it happening with a thing like the um, Transition Towns movement. I don't know if you've followed them. They're bursting out all over the place now where there's, they're trying to promote the processes by which communities can, can, can take control of their own economy and their own um, resources and prevent um, outside control and... Um, and I think uh, re-ruralization is a good thing that's begun to happen lately. What kind of political process are you going to go through to get through to those kinds of ideas, steady-state economic systems, systems based upon principles that, of no growth, or let's put it this way, selected growth, certain kinds of things can, can expand and other kinds of things uh, can't. How we get from here to there is the big uh, conundrum right now. And... Um, but um, I think the most important step is for people to talk about it that way and for us to get together and jointly articulate that the system that of economic growth as it currently exists cannot be sustained and is already not being sustained. And that it's a fantasy to think that we're going to grow our way out of this particular crisis, except in very short spurts. <laughs> and that... Um, Somehow, politically, a movement's got to start that will enable such a process to take place. Jerry, you've written about indigenous cultures. If we're to have a sustainable economy, a sustainable culture, is there something to be learned from them? 50% of the resources that remain in the world right now, a very high percentage of forests and and biodiversity in general, are on indigenous lands. And it's not an accident that that's the case. There's a long list of principles and stories and social pressure and economic discussion and organizational structures which promote that kind of a sustainable relationship in their environment. You didn't hunt until in a, in a place until all the animals were gone. You know, you stopped at a certain point. Your manner of hunting was in such a way that you respected the level of population that that would be sustainable for the beavers or the deer or whoever it was. You didn't overuse resources for the most part in most places. You didn't overpopulate because you could sustain comfortably a certain number of people in the community. You didn't provide concentrated power in most cases. Indigenous practices, which have been successful for hundreds, if not thousands, of indigenous communities, small indigenous communities, who continue to live in a sustainable manner on their lands, 
need to be taken seriously and looked at and and learned from. And I think there's a lot to be learned from the kinds of values that were operating for thousands of years and continue to operate in many of these places. You've been listening to a conversation recorded in 2010 with economist and former advertising executive Jerry Mander, founder of the International Forum on Globalization. I'm Dave Gardner, and this has been Conversation Earth, exploring our place on the planet.